Hello and welcome to Profiles. I'm your host, Malcolm Webb. I'm a pilot with the Civil Air Patrol, the volunteer auxiliary of the U.S. Air Force, with responsibilities in search and rescue, public affairs, and aerospace education programs for youth ages 12 to 18. In my day job, I'm an investment advisor in Bloomington, Indiana. My guest is retired Air Force Major General Mark A. Pillar, who will describe his experience on September 11, 2001, at the place that arguably became the central hub of the military and government's decision-making apparatus that day. General Pillar grew up in Hobart, Indiana, and currently lives in Columbus, Indiana. He graduated from the ROTC program at the University of Evansville in 1971 and served a tour of duty in the Vietnam War where he flew EC-47s, a military designation of the Douglas DC-3. Later, he further developed his flying expertise in aerial refueling tankers. Rising through the ranks, General Pillar was eventually assigned to serve as the Air Force Reserve Advisor to Admiral Richard Meese, the commander of STRATCOM. His first day on the job was September 11, 2001. General Pillar, welcome to the show. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity to come and talk to you today. In 1946, the Strategic Air Command was created to command and control much of the land-based infrastructure of America's nuclear arsenal. In 1992, with the end of the Cold War, Strategic Air Command ended and its duty transferred from the Air Force alone to a Joint Forces Strategic Command known today as STRATCOM, headquartered at Offutt Air Force Base in Nebraska. General Pillar, describe STRATCOM and the facility that houses it. STRATCOM has uh, responsibility for uh, all of our nuclear capability, both in the Navy with uh, the submarines, uh, with the Air Force with the missiles and the nuclear bombers, and then the uh, Army has some uh, limited uh, um, nuclear capabilities also. And so that all the nuclear capabilities became under the umbrella of uh, STRATCOM. The facility at Offutt Air Force Base in uh, Omaha, Nebraska, uh, is actually... Um, was built, I want to say, back in the early 60s, and it's uh, three stories above ground, or since it's a, uh, a joint operation now, we have three decks above ground, and then there are four below ground. So there's actually more of the building below ground than there is above ground. And uh, in, in the fourth deck below ground is where the uh, battle staff uh, area is, and it's a completely nuclear-hardened facility. Is that where your office was? No, no. We were expendable. We're up, we were upstairs <laughs> all the time. I actually had uh, – my office was on the second deck. President George W. Bush began September 11, 2001, the, the way he began many days in his presidency, with an early morning jog joined by members of his staff and security detail. That day he was in Sarasota, Florida, visiting an elementary school. What were you doing that morning? to prepare for your first day on the job? The reason it was my first day on the job, we coincided that uh, with our annual exercise, which is called Global Guardian. And uh, as the reserve advisor, the Air Force reserve advisor to uh, Admiral Meese, he hired me because of my tanker expertise. Uh, 65% of the tankers are in the Guard and Reserve, and they reported to uh, STRATCOM in case we went to a nuclear war. The, uh, the Strato tanker, the KC-135s that do the air refueling for the bombers to get them to the target. So we were getting ready to start our, was going to be a week-long exercise where um, we go through scenarios and have inputs and um, we go through our checklists and basically build up as we would in, in a real world uh, situation where things just sort of escalate and escalate and escalate. Somebody throws a rock and somebody throws a uh, lobs a stone back at them, and you know it just goes keeps going and going until it gets bigger, and then it falls into our lap and and um, the leadership uh, with our input um, decides on what the proper response should be. So at six o'clock in the morning, we start down in the command post. Uh, with the senior battle staff. Um, we've got about uh, 45 folks down there. We've got uh, seven flag officers of uh, 
varying from four star to one star and um, of and all the services except for actually the Coast Guard because uh, they don't have a nuclear capability and uh, also a, a political uh, advisor to uh, Admiral Meese. We start out with the daily briefings uh, that we're going to get into this scenario. They give us a weather briefing. They give us an intelligence uh, briefing update on what has happened, uh, what is going on, if you will, between the two combatants. And at this point in time, we're probably not even combatants. We are, we're probably on the sidelines, and it's uh, country X versus country Y, and they always make up some clever little names for these countries. And, uh, you know, they're just the hostilities are there and somebody's mobilizing forces and all that sort of stuff. So we get intel updates. Uh, we get weather updates. We get worldwide weather. We get a status of forces of uh, of uh, of their forces and our forces and what kind of uh, status we're in and what sort of readiness posture we're in. And, and at this point in time, it's just normal day-to-day operations. So we are getting ready to to do something else in anticipation of somebody else doing something, and then we would react to that. When did you first become aware that something real was happening in the world? About 9 o'clock in the morning, uh, I explain uh, the situation or the setup down in the battle staff area. We've got one wall, uh, one huge wall, that is nothing but TV screens or projection screens, if you will. Each screen is about 5 feet by 5 feet. We have eight of them. So in our uh, exercise, we are tracking different things on different screens through these eight screens. And we're looking at the position where, where all the senior leadership is, where the president is, where the vice president is, where the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. This is all exercise stuff. They, we right. make up stuff where they might be. We're also oh. Looking at the weather. Remember, we're all doing ex- – this is all exercise stuff. We're looking at the weather. Right. We're looking at what checklists we're supposed to be running. And then we have a running to- uh, a running uh, chronological calendar, if you will, of what happened at what time and what checklist we went into there. So we're doing all this. And at about, about 9 o'clock in the morning, one of the fellas uh, up in the support battle staff, which is sitting – about a floor above us and actually running this scenario because they've got a script that they're going by, right. calls down to Admiral Meese and says, sir, he says, there's, there's something going on here I think you need to see. And Admiral says, okay, flash it up on, on uh, screen one. So we're sitting there and I think we were watching CNN, CNN, ABC, I can't remember who, but we saw the World Trade Center burning. And we saw we, – we're, now we're listening to the reports about an airplane flying in. And as an airline pilot, I'm sitting there with some other reservists that are also airline pilots. And I, I look at that and I go, wow. I mean it is clear, crystal clear that day. Beautiful blue skies. How can an airplane get so far off course going into LaGuardia or you know, just on a sightseeing or something right. to, to fly into that building? And as we were watching that and listening to uh, what was going on in the TV, we saw the second plane go into the other tower. And the collective gasp in that room just sucked the air uh, out of everyone. And Admiral Meese turned around. He said, that's no accident. We're under attack. Send out all the messages to cancel the uh, exercise. And we're going into real-world situations, get those checklists out, and let's shift gears. Do you remember how you felt at that moment? It was probably like somebody had just punched me as hard as they could right in the right in the heart. We didn't know if there were private planes. Clearly, the second one was a large commercial airplane because you saw that on video. Go, I mean, you saw that live. It wasn't even on video. It was live right now going in. And, I mean, it was just one of those oh-my-God moments. And you just – you knew that something was going wrong. And as an airline – and and you didn't know what airline it was. So, you know, I've got buddies 
that were flying that day with Delta. I got buddies that were flying with United and American and whatever airline. I I have friends that work for other airlines. Right, and I should point out at at in addition to your Air Force duties, that as as reservist, you are also a, a Delta Airlines pilot. Yeah, I was flying seven sixty sevens at the time. So um, you know, you see an airplane like that go in, you go, "Wow, that's a seven sixty seven. How could that have happened?" Uh, but you you knew that something was going on. So there's a lot of conjecture as to where the plane come from, where was it going, what the situation was. You know, you know that there are probably hundreds of people on there. You know, the crews on there, uh, but what made them? fly into those two buildings. I mean, that that was a, a complete mystery. What happened next? In D.C., uh, things started really popping and happening. They started uh, gathering their people together. When when something like this happens, phone calls go out and people start in, in the government, start going to certain areas. In the Pentagon, there's a place down in the basement where they, they go for this. The White House has a situation room down in the basement also. And I'm sure that's where they started going. From what happened later on, uh, as near as I can remember, it was Vice President Cheney, uh, Condoleezza Rice, right. and Colin Powell that were in the White House at that time down in the basement. Uh, over in the Pentagon, uh, you had uh, Secretary Rumsfeld, Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld, right. uh, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and, of course, all the other um, – staff that comes and has helps them uh, through these sorts of things. What they did was they set up a, a phone network, a party line, if you will, and various agencies were on this party line. And the folks down in the Pentagon were sort of running the show, setting up things, uh, teeing questions up, if you will, gathering information and saying, here's what we're thinking of doing. What is your input? And so you would hear, and, and the party line was on our speakers there at Stratcom, and right. you would hear, this is the DDO, the Deputy Director of Operations. And he would start every conversation with that. So you knew who was talking. Right. He said, this is the DDO. We are thinking of doing this. For instance, we are thinking of uh, grounding all, uh, all airplanes throughout the United States. What is your input? And then you would have about two to three minutes, uh, at like we did at Stratcom, and Admiral Meese would say, what do, you, what do we have for input here? And, and he would get his input, and then within five minutes, it would be, this is the DDO polling the support agencies, if you will. And he would go through the FAA, the CIA, the NSA, uh, the FBI, uh, Stratcom, uh, Northern Command, Southern Command, uh, European Command, Pacific Forces, and everyone would get their input. Everyone would get their little cut on, yes, sir, that's a good idea. Have you thought of that, 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 that. And then they would get, get all this input in D.C., and they would make the decision to, based on, on the input that they got from, if you will, their subject matter experts. You had indicated that the, the Pentagon was – the hub at this point of that. Was this prior to the Pentagon being struck or subsequent to it? I would say that was subsequent because uh, they got struck, if I remember correctly, shortly after 9 o'clock also. Right. Um, so they were still um, – uh, everyone was sort of in a scramble mode to not, not knowing what was going to happen next. And I don't think uh, they probably had their – uh, ducks in line. It it takes a while to to get get everybody from throughout that huge building and and down to uh, to where they needed to be. But that continued to function despite the fil- despite the fact that the building was on fire. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there was there was no question about that. That is far enough uh, away from from where that happened. And again, it's probably f- three to four stories underground. Sure. We're going to take a break and listen to some music that you picked out. It's somewhere out there. <laughs> somewhere out there. Well, that has um, that has a really special meaning uh, to me. Uh, when I went off for uh, Desert Storm in uh, January of '91, my two children were were pretty small, and uh, 
when I was over in Saudi, you know, and, and we left not knowing when we would come back and certainly uh, not knowing if we would come back. Uh, one of the toughest goodbyes of my life was saying, saying goodbye to my two small children and, and, and my wife. So that sort of became our theme song while I was over there, and the kids would hear that, and they would think of Dad. So it was, you know, Dad somewhere out there. Uh, they didn't have a real firm grasp of where Saudi Arabia was, but uh, they knew I wasn't home and didn't know when I'd get home. So that, that became very special for our family. Listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Malcolm Webb, and my guest is retired two-star Air Force General Mark Piller from Columbus, Indiana. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Mark, Desert Storm was not the only war you were involved in. You flew missions in Operation Desert Shield, then Operation Desert Storm, and in support of the Bosnia no-fly zone. In Vietnam, you flew a military variant of the DC-3, originally designed as a pre-war airliner. Tell me about this plane called the Goonie Bird. Why was the United States Air Force still flying a plane that had been designed more than 35 years prior to your use of it? The Goonie Bird, I mean, it's hard to say Goonie Bird without saying venerable. I mean, it was it was just a, a workhorse. If I remember correctly, it was designed in the early to mid-30s and produced in the, in the late 30s, and they were supposed to produce about uh, five to 7,000 of them, and they ended up, because of the war, producing over 35,000 of them. So it was... By far, the uh, airplane that was most produced during uh, any time, peace or war. Sure. There are many of them still flying today, 75 years later. Yeah, they're all All over over the the world. Yeah, they're all over the world. The reason uh, they used the Goonie Bird for this particular mission, and as the EC of the EC-47, the E is electronic warfare, the C is the cargo mission, that's a secondary mission. So our primary mission was electronic warfare. And on our missions, we carried anywhere from three to seven linguists in the back of the aircraft. And they would listen on radios to the bad guys. And they would uh, see what they were doing, listen to what they're doing, listen to any uh, radio transmissions. And if it was something that was of interest to our best interests, the people on the ground would get some airborne visitors, as in an F-4 or a B-52 or something, to disrupt their operations. Okay. So you were really flying an intelligence mission at that point. Yes. And and the reason they picked the Goonie Bird is because it was it was slow. And that's mm-hmm. what you wanted. And it had a lot of loiter time also. Most of our uh, missions were between eight and a half and nine hours. So we could stay airborne for a long time without being refueled. And it had no air, airborne uh, refueling capability. So that's we would we would fly our missions slow, uh, so our guys could 
hear what was going on. We each had our little areas to go out and cover in Southeast Asia during the day, uh, not so much at night, but mostly uh, from sunrise to sunset, because that's when most of the activity was as far as the communications go. So uh, that was our mission. And because it was slow and because they could position the antennas where they needed to get all the radio um, contact that they needed. That's why they picked the Goonie Bird. They had tried other airplanes. They were too fast or couldn't have the proper array of antenna, and we ended up with the Goonie Bird. Wow. As you rose through the ranks of the Air Force, you commanded a flying squadron and later an operations group. You served as a vice commander of two wings and a numbered Air Force. I spoke to one of your colleagues from that time, and he described you as somebody who was patriotic funny, soft-hearted, calm under pressure, and in possession of a delightful, irreverent streak. These last two characteristics were on display during an incident that occurred during a minimal interval takeoff, and I'll ask you in a moment to explain what that is, where you were serving as an observer seated in the jump seat of of the cockpit of a KC-135 tanker, a four-engined plane, and Colonel Gary Beebe, the pilot, encountered a flock of birds as he was taking off. Describe what happened. That minimal interval takeoff is uh, where two tankers, which KC-135s, which are about the same size as a Boeing 707, so you've got four, two large four-engine airplanes, taking off 12 seconds apart. Uh, Gary and I uh, and another pilot, and the, and another pilot and the navigator and the boom operator, the entire crew, were in the lead airplane. Uh, I was in the observer seat acting as an instructor that day. Uh, Gary's an instructor also, but we – just the way it works out, sometimes you need an instructor to instruct you to fill some squares, if you will, and get some training. So I'm sitting in the jump seat as an instructor, and just as he rotated – I mean, just this huge flock of of birds uh, flew up, and okay, and he and he's rotating the aircraft to, to for take, take off. off. Yes, for takeoff, and they they flew up from the runway and went in the engines. Every one of them, uh, every one of the engines took birds. Oh my gosh! So the tanker, uh, any aircraft is is designed. Any any multi engine aircraft is designed to fly, to be able to recover from that and fly on less than the four engines, the three engines, or the two engines. They're all designed for that. So we took off, got airborne. We heard the thumps. We heard the thuds. Uh, I started looking at the engine instruments for exhaust gas temperature to rise, uh, for oil pressure to drop. But what would they have indicated if you'd seen that, that that the engines were failing? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. If the uh, exhaust gas, gas temperature goes up too high, that engine's about to burn up and or blow up, oh. uh, if, which is not a good thing. <laughs> yes. Yeah, which is a, a very major problem compared to just taking well, some birds. Any takeoff is the most vulnerable point of that flight because that is where you are closest to the stall speed when you when you rotate and get into the, uh, the takeoff mode. That is uh, when you are uh, most at risk. And, and in, Colonel Beebe couldn't, couldn't abort the flight, or oh, couldn't no, abort the takeoff because there's a plane right behind him getting ready to take off. Well, and besides that, you, you have already rotated. Okay. You have a speed uh, far behind that, which is your decision speed as to whether you will abort the flight or continue the flight. And and that speed was way past. Oh, okay. And he had no choice at that point. He, no, absolutely no choice. He, we were going airborne. So actually, we were all pretty much already airborne. We probably had uh, wheels off the ground when the birds came up. Okay. We continue climbing out. We start hearing getting the vibration out of one of the engines, and so we shut that engine down as a precautionary. And we start running our checklists for engine failure after takeoff and all the other stuff that you do. And as we are doing that, and, and the three of us, actually the five of us on the airplane are all working toward getting those checklists done because that's that's very critical so you don't do less more damage to the airplane. And we're also de- declaring an emergency, obviously, because we have – Shut down an engine, even though it's precautionary. We've shut down an engine. We're declaring an emergency. We're going to come back around and land. What you do in any airplane that has that capability is you adjust your gross weight. 
So you start dumping fuel out of whatever vents that you have to dump fuel so that you can get down to a lighter gross weight. Uh, so the landing um, speeds are lower. Uh, it, it just gives you a margin, of, a, a far greater margin of error for what is about to happen, which you're going to come in and land and the fire trucks are going to follow you around and all that kind of stuff. All that exciting stuff that you never want to do. You know, aviation is described as hours and hours of boredom interspersed with moments of sheer terror. Well, this wasn't a terror part because nobody was shooting at you, but it was certainly an excitable part where everybody knew that they needed to do what they did. So we, we turn base, we're running checklists, we turn downwind, and I'm watching the instruments and one of the other engines, the oil pressure, drops on it. So we shut that engine down. So now we're at four-engine aircraft flying on two engines. So we start to come into land, and I had already decided that if – one of the other engines quit. I was going to we were going to restart um, the one the initial one that we had shut down for the vibration because it's better to have a slightly vibrating operating engine than a one engine four engine aircraft. If you see what I'm talking right. about. So we come in and we land and we pull into the chocks, get the airplane parked and everything. The crew chiefs, of course, they're all excited. The crew chiefs come out to greet us and everything and we're doing fine. And um, they inspect, start inspecting the engines and one of the crew chiefs comes over and says, hey, Pill, he says, uh, you had about five minutes left on one of your operating engines. So we did good. Included in your awards is the Distinguished Flying Cross. Can you tell us about the incident that resulted in that award? Uh, yeah, that's uh, a very serious incident at the time, but at, at the same time, it was uh, sort of um, funny in retrospect. I was flying uh, EC-47s in Vietnam, and normally, since they were long missions, like, as I mentioned, eight-and-a-half to nine-hour missions, uh, and we had no autopilot, uh, we would like, if possible, to have three pilots on the airplane. And we would rotate through the seats. You would fly for a, for an hour, observe for an hour, and then you would rest for an hour. You'd read a book, take a nap, uh, eat your lunch, whatever. So we were constantly rotating through the seats. Normally you had an aircraft commander and two co-pilots. So on this particular mission, we had an aircraft commander, uh, Major Martinez, he was a, a Puerto Rican uh, American, and me and another first lieutenant were, were the two co-pilots. We're flying the mission. I'm in the left seat. The other co-pilot's in the right seat. Major Martinez is uh, in the aisleway taking a nap. All of a sudden, we, we see flak. We get hit by uh, anti-aircraft um, oh. artillery from, from the ground. I immediately push up the throttles, which is in a, in a Goonie Bird means that you accelerate immediately from 90 miles an hour to 92 miles an hour. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's just a slow airplane. So right. you get the idea. So I push up the throttles and I start uh, making rapid turns left and right. Uh, it's called jinking. You try to uh, – so you're not just a stable a f- target that they right. can shoot at. You try to – Evasive action. Evasive action. I'm taking evasive action. And I'm thinking about all the guys in the back that I have back there in case we need to bail out. We wore chest packs. We didn't wear our uh, a backpack parachute all the time. We had chest packs. And most of the time you didn't wear it. Most of the time you, you sat in the corner hat, at arm's length so if something happened, you could just clip it on and you'd be ready to go. So I reach up to hit the alarm bell just as a precautionary to tell them to prepare to bail out. Just one ring of the alarm bell, prepare to bail out. And as I ring the alarm bell, I look back and they're already standing in the aisle with their chest packs on. Because as we had gotten hit by the AAA, shrapnel had gone all down the left-hand side of the aircraft. But hadn't, hadn't hit anybody, hadn't hit anything critical, hadn't hurt anything. At this time, we don't know what the status of the airplane is. We're jinking. We're trying to to get the heck out of the way and head back toward Laos. So if we do have to bail out, at least we'll bail out in Laos. Hopefully, we'll make it to Thailand to to bail out there. While all this is going on, Major Martinez jumps up, and he's obviously excited, and he's yelling instructions at us. 
Unfortunately, he's yelling at us in Spanish because he's excited. I have no clue what he's talking about, but I think we're doing pretty much what we're supposed to be doing. So we start heading back toward Laos, and obviously we make it back. Okay, nobody has to bail out. We had, as I said, shrapnel down the left-hand side of the aircraft. We had uh, some shrapnel out in the wing. But nothing hit any of the fuel tanks. Nothing hit uh, any of the people. We all made it back uh, safe and sound with a uh, a, a holier than thou uh, type of airplane than when we left with. Wow! But you did take fire. We did take fire, and you know that happens sometimes, not very often. Tell me about why you chose to make Columbus, Indiana, your home. Both of my jobs, luckily allow me to live wherever I want to live. As long as I show up for work on time, they're pretty happy with me. Mm-hmm. Originally a Hoosier from Hobart, as you said. And uh, my wife's family is over up near the Bluffton area, and she has six sisters. And uh, I was flying for Delta mm-hmm. and also in the Air Force Reserve up at Grissom Air, Air Reserve Base. But we were living down in Atlanta, Georgia, south of Atlanta. And I was flying for Delta down there and commuting up to do my reserve job, which is fairly normal for any of the reserve crew members that have that capability of of uh, riding around on airplanes and, and getting to their reserve job. So we're living down there, and uh, we're down there for about seven years. And my wife said, you know, it's really easy for us to go visit them. It's very difficult for them to come visit us. I would like to move back to the Midwest. I said, okay, you know, because as we all know, if mama's not happy, nobody's happy. Right. So I said, okay. At the time, consequently, Delta was moving or uh, opening up a base in Cincinnati for the pilots. So Mm -hmm. I could transfer to Cincinnati. One of the things you do in the airline is you have to be on, on reserve sometimes. And if someone comes in sick or calls in sick at the late last minute, they have a number of people that are on reserve that have to be within two, two hours of the airport. So as I looked around two hours from Cincinnati, I could see that I could go to the south side of Indianapolis uh, over near you know Dayton, Ohio, and sort of an arc that way um, and live anywhere in that area and meet that two-hour criteria. So we basically looked Indiana and, and Ohio. It took us two years. Uh, I mean, we looked a lot of places, uh, two years before we finally decided to move to uh, Columbus. And we picked Columbus uh, because of the good school system, uh, a, a just a really nice downtown area, and available housing. We just liked um, liked the sense that, that we got there in Columbus and, and uh, have never been disappointed with our our decision it's time for our second piece of music tell us a little bit about stars and stripes forever i played played in the orchestra and played the band high school and college um, and have always had an interest in music and have been a particular fan of john philip Sousa. when we moved to columbus and when i found myself with with time to do things, I got involved with the Columbus, Indiana Philharmonic, doing several things. Uh, I really got involved with what we have over there for Memorial Day. We have a Salute to Veterans concert, uh, which is an outdoor concert. The Philharmonic puts it on for free. We get anywhere between five and 7,000 people at this, at this concert. And um, the executive director of uh, the Philharmonic had heard me uh, read in church. We went to the same church today, together over there in Columbus, sure. and she had heard me read the uh, the readings uh, in church and thought I did a good job. So they have an opportunity uh, in the concert to do some dramatic readings, and uh, lots of times it's, it's letters from soldiers from Bartholomew County who paid the ultimate sacrifice in, in one of the conflicts. And we have a very nice memorial in Columbus to those people with some of these readings actually um, chiseled into the stones in the uh-huh. memorial. So that's how I got involved. They asked me if I would be a military person 
supporting or participating in this Salute to Veterans concert, and I got uh, got to do the readings. Dr. David Bowden and I became friends, uh, and as we talked about, you know, bucket lists and what you would like to do and dreams and all that kind of stuff, I said, you know, David, I said, uh, it has always been one of my dreams to be able to conduct the Stars and Stripes forever. So one year for a gift, David gave me uh, two one-hour lessons in conducting and the opportunity to uh, conduct the Philharmonic at the Salute concert. And uh, I think he enjoyed that almost as much as I did, just watching the joy on my face as he was off to the side of the stage and he could see what I was doing and how much fun I was having doing that. And since then, he's let me do it one other time. And it's it's uh, oh, I can, it's a lot of fun. It's I, a hoot. I can easily imagine that. And I can very easily uh, see him enjoying watching you conduct. And our concert is uh, the Friday before Memorial Day every year. Uh, we'll have several flyovers. Uh, we'll have uh, military equipment out there for the kids to crawl out on and, and soldiers for them to talk to. We do the 1812 Overture with live cannon, which is absolutely awesome.
If you're just joining us, welcome to WFIU's Profiles. I'm Malcolm Webb, and my guest is retired Major General Mark Piller. General Piller was the Air Force Reserve Advisor to the Commander of STRATCOM on September 11, 2001. Let's return to the events of that day. People are holed up in a couple different locations uh, in, in D.C., uh, down the Pentagon, down the White House. Um, they've evacuated the, pen, the, uh, the White House upper floors. They've evacuated the congressional building. And we start getting, actually, throughout the country, uh, we start getting threats, uh, phone-in calls, people saying there's a bomb here, there's something going on there, all that kind of stuff. There were uh, reports of a bomb at the Transamerica building in, in San Francisco. Uh, there was a bomb at the John Hancock building in Chicago. There's a jo- bomb at the Sears Tower in Chicago. There was a fleet of rider trucks that were headed towards Cheyenne Mountain in, uh, in Colorado where North American uh, command is that supposedly were full of explosives. There was a wow. four airplanes, four crop dusters heading north from Mexico with anthrax gas that they were going to spread over Phoenix, Arizona. There were all sorts of calls coming in. Were these all nuts or were they um, in some cases, you know, some of these well well-intentioned people who had heard something are really just nut jobs. They were nut jobs. Uh, okay. But the point is you can't let – you can't blow any of them off. You have to respond to every one sure. of them. So, sure. you know, you think things are going fairly smoothly on the surface, sort of like a duck. But underneath, like down at our level, we're paddling like crazy because there's a lot going on other than, you know, as if four – three airplanes crashing into buildings isn't enough. There's a lot of other stuff going on. There's a lot of reports of bomb threats and all that sort of stuff. So you have to send first responders out to look at all these things. You know, I think of the first responders to uh, the, the World Trade Center. And as the people are coming down the steps as fast as they can, the police and firemen are going up the stairs as fast as they can. Those people are heroes. They were trying to save lives, and it cost them their own. All this stuff is going on. People are, are running around responding to all these uh, threats. In the meantime, the president has left Florida, gone to Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana, uh, trying to get the communications that he needed, that right. he found out that he didn't quite have what he needed on Air Force One. They didn't have what he needed at Barksdale either. So they decided, let's go to Offutt. And the reason they came to Offutt is because we were in the middle or we started the day in our exercise. All our communications were up and running. Right. Everything had been tested the week prior. So we knew that everything was going to work exactly the way it was supposed to be. And that's what he needed at that time. So we hear that he might be coming. So Admiral Meese says, no outside phone calls. I don't want anybody to you know, know that the president may be coming here. Right. We've got one of the local... Uh, TV stations on one of our screens, and as we're watching, hi, it's Joe Bag of Donuts here outside of uh, off at Air Force Base, and we have word that the president will be landing at well, and, and there's Air Force One now landing, touching down <laughs> no. behind me. So much for security, you know. It, it's uh, it it just doesn't always work the way you would like it to. So he lands, he deplanes, uh, he comes down through a. Uh, a shaft, if you will, that's supposed to be a rapid escape uh, point rather than a rapid entry point into where we are right. uh, down in the uh, uh, battle staff. <laughs> we know he's coming. He steps into the room through about a uh, an iron door that's about four feet thick f- wow. as, as a blast door for a nuclear uh, detonation. And obviously he hasn't been in that room before. He looks to his left and he sees these all these these eight TV screens and he sort of does a double take there and then he looks to the right and he sees all of us standing at attention and he sort of acknowledges us and he sits down next to Admiral Meese and Admiral Meese shows him what each screen is tracking and who's where and all that kind of stuff and more importantly the cr- chronological data of what has gone on that day and what what DEFCON we're in and uh, and and all that kind of stuff that that he just sort of needed to get up to speed on. 
he did uh, take a phone call while while we were there, while he was there in the room with us. That was sort of interesting, uh, and it was uh, Secretary Rumsfeld calling in, and the president is on the phone, but the speaker phones are still on, and I don't know if nobody, I don't know if somebody was supposed to turn them off or not, but it was obvious that we were listening to the conversation. So the president says, "Well, Mr. Secretary says, uh, I, you need to know that." We're not the only ones that hearing this conversation. He says, I'm in a room here with about uh, 25 or 30 of my new closest friends, and they're all <laughs> hearing everything that you're going to say. And uh, Secretary Rumsfeld says, well, thank you, Mr. President. I appreciate that heads up. And the president says, well, he says, I figured I needed to warn you. He says, because uh, I'm never quite sure what's going to come out of a former Navy fighter pilot's mouth. <laughs> then they had a very short conversation uh, about, you know, we want to talk to you about this and this, but you need to be secure. And he said, fine. And uh, he basically got up and went into another room. Right. They had secure communications in there and got on to a teleconference with uh, the folks back in D.C. They were very reluctant to have him come back. He was very adamant about, uh, I need to be back in D.C., uh, we're the United States of America, uh, and the world needs to see that we got a bloody nose, but um, uh, we're not knocked out yet. We're not even close. Um, we need to get. I need to get back and get get the government back where it needs to be, and which direction it needs to be moving. Uh, in preparation for this interview, I spoke with Andy Card, who was with the president um, that day, and. He he also told me that one of the reasons President Bush wanted to leave STRATCOM was because uh, he sensed that his presence there was a distraction to all that paddling underneath that you were describing earlier. Could you comment on that? Probably from – I mean for a moment in time, yeah, it was. I mean it was just sort of a hiccup in a, in a long day of uh, gasps. So um, – not that big a deal, not as disruptive as he may have thought. While he may have seen us down there uh, on the ground floor not doing stuff that we normally would have been doing, the support staff upstairs, the support battle staff upstairs, uh, they were still paddling pretty hard. Maybe not making the inputs that they would have to Admiral Meese had the president not been there, but you can always catch up with things like that. Uh, a minor disruption um, yeah, but not that big a deal. Any final words before we close the show? One of the things that, that really Im impressed me that day, September the 11th, was how professional our civilian leadership was, how professional our military leadership was. No one was running around with their hair on fire. Uh, you know, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Everyone was very focused on protecting the American people, which is what our job is. In the military, we are the Department of Defense, and we defend the American people. And we had a tremendous opportunity to do that. I think we did that pretty well. No one was running off saber-rattling, saying, let's go, let's go get them, let's go get them now. Everything was very methodical. Let's let's get all the input. Let's do the right thing for our people here in the United States. And later on, uh, when I served in D.C. in AQ, I learned a very important lesson that uh, not all patriots wear uniforms. A lot of them wear suits and a lot of them wear skirts. And there are some very professional, very dedicated patriots that are civilians in Washington, D.C., and uh, I thank God for their service also. Well, we've come to the end of our show. You've been listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm your host, Malcolm Webb, and my guest has been retired Air Force Major General Mark Piller from Columbus, Indiana. Before we end the show with your final selection of music, General Piller, I'd like to say thank you for being our guest to thank you for being a part of our community in central Indiana, and to take a moment to thank you for your service to the country. Now tell us why you have chose this final piece. That week at STRATCOM was a very difficult week for all of us, in uniform, out of uniform. We all knew 
people in the Pentagon who had perished. Um, we had all been a a very significant, I think, part of uh, our history. Uh, I think that was our, my generation's Pearl Harbor. And we had lived, lived it uh, nonstop, uh, live, right up to the minute on TV. So Admiral Meese said, you know what, we need a break. We need to let off a little steam. He said, uh, I want all the flag officers at the, the old officers club. We're going to have a little dinner, uh, a couple of pops, and, uh, and, and bring the wives, and, and we'll just relax a little bit. This is Thursday, and Admiral Meese says we're going to go do that. So we do. And one of, their, one of his favorite uh, performers with the uh, Heartland Band there based in Omaha was a guitar player and singer. And uh, he played some of Admiral Meese's favorite songs and stuff. And then he said, uh, you know, I would like to close tonight with something that I think is appropriate. He played uh, Lee, Lee Greenwood's God, was, bless, the USA. Yeah, God bless the USA. And uh, everyone in that room stood, held hands, tried to sing, but couldn't get through the words. Every, there was not a dry eye in that room. And it, it was a very appropriate way to, uh, to end our very significant week there at Stratcom. General Pillar, thank you. My pleasure. If tomorrow all the things were gone I'd work for all my life And I had to start again With just my children and my wife I thank my lucky stars To be living here today Cause the flag still stands for freedom And they can't take that away And I'm proud to be an American Where at least I know I'm free And I won't forget the men who died Who gave that right to me And I gladly stand Defend her still today Cause there ain't no doubt I love this land God bless the USA The program you just heard was recorded in July of 2011. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.